Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for your story. I confess that I don't understand it nearly as, I, I, as much as I wish I did. Um, but your story is utterly compelling. There's no other story like it. Um, thank you for my friends who are out here, some I know, some I don't. In, these next, in this next bit of time, um, as we sit and we listen to your voice, Jesus, would you speak through the words and would your spirit convict us on what is true, what is good? Would you open our eyes to what's most important? Would you remind us of the story that you're writing in the world? We love you. We praise you. It's in your name. Amen. We are a community of the story. Now, obviously, that's a huge open-ended statement. We could take this so many ways. I just want to take it one. I just want to ask one fundamental question when I say we are a community of the story. The question is, what kind of story? When we say that we are a community of the story, what story are we talking about? What kind of story are we talking about? And to answer that, I just want to offer up one passage. This comes from the letter of 1 John, um, which is one of the later letters written in the New Testament. Many scholars date it to around 80 or 90 AD. Um, So it's been about 50 years. The Jesus movement has been spreading throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. Um, And this community, it's called the Joannine community or the Joannine community, um, there's this letter that's circulating around. And this comes from the fourth chapter of it, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And this is what he writes. (laughs) Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a means of forgiveness for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I bet you can't guess what kind of story we're talking about. Love. Now here's the interesting thing about this passage and about this world. Uh, and when I say this world, the, the Greco-Roman context that John is writing in. In the Greco-Roman culture, it was very polytheistic. There were many gods of many regions. And when the, these writers um, wrote about their gods, perhaps, perhaps, they ascribed um, a, 
a kindness toward humans. Or the Greek word you might see is phileo. Phileo is where you get Philadelphia, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. Any, any Philadelphians in here? One, loud and proud, love it. Phileo, perhaps when these writers are talking about how their gods interact with the world, interact with humans, they might say that their gods phileo the world. But that just means they're kind of favorably disposed. That there's a, a little bit of a, a, a master throwing the dog a bone every now and again, because the master is fond of the dog, right? But this Christian movement in this first century Greco-Roman context, from the start, did not use phileo to talk about their God. From the start. They used another Greek word, and if you've been a part of the church, you already know what it is. The word they used to say, our God doesn't relate with the world like phileo. He relates with the world as agape. That's the word he uses. Agape. Agapeo is the verb. It is used copiously throughout the New Testament. By some estimates, 143 times as a noun, 116 times as a verb. And if you looked outside of the biblical literature, you were hard pressed to find other religions of that time talk about their gods as agapeo. Only the Christians seem to use this word. So why did they use agape instead of phileo? What were they trying to differentiate? What were they trying to make explicit? It's really tough to pin down, right? And if you think about your own relationships, like those really deep, powerful relationships with, with spouse or with parents or with friends, and then they ask you, why do you love this person? It's tough to give an answer, isn't it? Like you can start describing what you love about the person, but that's not really why I love them. It's deeper. We, we have history. Um, there's right? It's really tough to pin down. But at the core, what's going on when we see the word agape, as we do in this passage, is that there's a relational intensity. Agape love is a relational intensity, an important, a mutual claim upon both partners. Both partners have a claim upon the other. That's unique. The other gods of sort of the Greco-Roman culture, you had no claim on them. They did whatever they wanted. But the Christian God, apparently, in this Jesus, says, no, 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 you can claim me. You can claim me. I am binding myself to you. We're in this together. So it's this relational intensity, this mutual claim, a sober love. It's a it's a love, it's a, it's a commitment that withstands fluctuations of emotion, that withstands fluctuations of circumstance, and it emphasizes a moral commitment to the one being loved. It's a consistent love. It's a perpetual love. And so I'm trying to like distill all this down. The, the best shorthand definition of what do we mean when we say God agapes. God loves. Agape is sacrificial commitment to another. To agape is to sacrificially commit yourself for something or someone else. 
And this is so wrapped up with the identity of God. In the Old Testament, which is written in the Hebrew language, the word you constantly see is hesed, which means steadfastness, steadfast love. But we're always told that God possesses hesed. In the New Testament, when we see agape, right here in John's writing, what do we see? John says God is agape. That somehow God's nature in this sacrificial commitment are so intertwined. They're so inseparable that it's like God is this. At his core, the, the triune God at his core is sacrificial commitment. And then John says God demonstrated this by sacrificially committing his only son to the world. God parted with himself, wrote himself into the story. And in Jesus, we see the unique manifestation of that agape. That's why all people are compelled by the Jesus story. Because we see something that we haven't seen in other people's stories. What are we sort of trying to describe? We see agape. We don't have the language for it because it's foreign to us. But that's what we're looking at. When we see Jesus live his life, when we see him die, we see the way he interacts with people, we are seeing one who more than anyone else in the history of the world embodies this sacrificial commitment for others and for the world. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us. And we can only know this sacrificial commitment, says John, because we see it in him. We see his sacrificial commitment, that it's the center of the universe spreading throughout like yeast and bread. True sacrifice, true sacrificial commitment is to do for others in a way that they probably will never realize. Which is why when we read about love, right? One of the primary examples that people talk about is parenting. Now, I'm not a parent myself, but what I've heard, and by God's grace, hopefully I'll get the chance to experience it one day, is that the parents are making sacrifices for their child in a way that that child will never fully understand, right? We've all experienced that with our loved ones, our mentors. I mean, especially at this young age, I know we have a lot of young parents. Your child is not gonna remember this stage of their life. And yet this is the most vulnerable stage of their life. Where if you were to remove your hand, remove your sacrificial commitment for them for a second, they're done. True sacrificial commitment is to commit yourself, to sacrificially commit yourself to another who probably will never realize the fullness of what you're doing. And this is the journey of Jesus, says John learning how to live in a way that sacrificially commits your life for the flourishing of another. To lose and to give up your protection, your desires, your wants, because it serves them. Kind of a, a weird example, and all metaphors fall short, but this is the first thing I think of, it stuck with me. Has anyone ever seen the movie A Knight's Tale? With Heath Ledger, yeah, yeah. Uh, fun fact, Anna told me this, Heath Ledger's old house 
is attached to PS261. I didn't know that. So for anyone who's curious, if you leave the building, take a right on uh, Pacific and then a right on Hoyt. His house is right there on uh, Hoyt and Dean, I guess. So uh, we can fan fanboy later and take pictures and whatever. Um, a Knight's Tale. There's a scene in A Knight's Tale where Heath Ledger uh, is becoming a knight. He's entering into these contests. He's winning them. And of course, right, there's the, the princess to be won. And all these knights love her. Uh, they say they love her. And all these knights say they're going to win in her honor. And Heath Ledger follows suit and he goes, I'm going to win this contest in your honor because I love you. And she goes, well, you don't really love me. And he's like, what are you talking about? And she goes, if you really loved me, you wouldn't win in my honor, you would lose in my honor. He's like, what are you, what? She goes, by losing, you're denying your fundamental nature, <laughs> right? You're, you will naturally want to win. That's something that makes sense to you. But if you actually love me, you will deny yourself, you'll go against your nature, you'll lose from everyone else's perspective, but then I will know that you actually care about me more than anything else, right? Now, that's not fully what Jesus means, probably, when he's talking about this agape love, but it's getting at something. It's getting at something. That true sacrificial commitment is putting the other so wholly above yourself that you might lose in their honor. Now, hopefully they won't ask you to do that because they're putting you above themselves, their self, but that's another story. This is agape. Or it's, it's, it's at Christmas time. When I'm around my family and my grandmother says to me, hey, Russell, do you want to look at some pictures I took? And she's got an old like Nikon rebel camera from the early aughts. <laughs> and she pulls it out. And I know that the next hour of my time is going to be looking at terrible photos of birds and flowers in her backyard. <laughs> That's what I know. And I have a split second decision, right? Russell, do you want to look at pictures? <laughs> no, Grandma, I don't. <laughs> But what would cause her to flourish, right? She wants to share in her joy with her grandson. If I'm really putting her first, which I don't because I'm a human and I haven't gotten this agape love either, I will sit beside her and I will seek to find empathy and looking at terrible photos of flowers that I've never heard of. I spent 15 minutes with her, just FYI. <laughs> this is the type of love that John says is at the center of, of the story. But this is a tough sell for us. This type of love, as you hear about it, it might sound really foreign. And there are a couple reasons why it sounds really unnatural and really foreign. First reason, we're Americans. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. You and I have been raised in a country that says, above all else, put yourself first, right? That inviolable is the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, obviously, when you double-click that, you realize it's not, not everyone gets to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but that's our dream. That's our ideal. And when we say, what does it mean to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? It's really about that dollar bill, isn't it? It's economics. Underneath everything 
is our pursuit of our economic advantage. As Americans, our core is not this sacrificial commitment. And I'm not like judging or condemning, I'm observing. This is, culture is like the air we breathe. We don't even know we're in it. At the, our core, the way we've been raised is in a country, what we value, what we put stock in, is pursuing our economic best interests. And if there's anything left over that I can help you, then I will, but first, I'm gonna get mine. Secondly, this is also really hard for us, because not only are we Americans, but a lot of us in this room, not all of us, but a lot of us are millennial Americans, or at least live in a period of time, a period of history, which is very unlike most of human history. We have been raised in a culture that has worked really hard and done a very good job of eliminating lots of pain, lots of impatience. Friends, if I had been born probably, and, and this might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but if I had been born 30 or 40 years prior to when I was born, I probably would have died as a child. I'm not kidding. I had a lot of health complications as a baby. I was very sickly. Our technological advancements have kept me alive, have eliminated pain. Not only uh, um, medical advancements, but also our advancements of entertainment, right? And we talked about this before. We live in a day and age where I can get whatever I want, whenever I want. If I wanna order food, boom, I order it. I have a question I need to answer right now, I can get the answer right now. We have worked extremely hard and done a really good job at eliminating all these aspects of tension and having to be patient that most of human history and a lot of humans around the world don't have. We've avoided conflict. That's the newest development that's like crazy to me. We have, it's like this thing now where that if we have conflict, because so much of our interpersonal relationships are mediated through technologies, that we've forgotten how to have conflict. And when there is conflict between one another, usually that signals the end of a relationship. Like, ah, oh, it was a good shot. We, we had some chemistry for a while, but now we're fighting about who's better, the Dodgers or the Braves, and sorry, we just can't do this anymore, right? Like conflict signals the end of a relationship, where biblically speaking, and, like historically speaking, conflict signals the beginning of a real relationship. Only in conflict do two people have to commit to one another such that they start rubbing off on one another and even conjoining together. Conflict's the beginning. It's gotten so bad that there's this new cultural trend, which I just discovered, and it blew my mind. Maybe it won't blow your mind. So when I was growing up and you were invited to something, which wasn't that long ago, but you had two, and if you were invited to something and you didn't want to go, you had two options, right? You made up a lie, right? Come on, let's be honest. You said, oh, my mom has to, you know, I got to run an errand for my mom. I'm not going to be able to make it. I don't have to run an errand for my mom. I just don't want to go to this, right? You made up a lie or you just didn't respond. Those were your two options. Now, here's what's happening. And the reason why I know this is because we've recently planted a church. So we've held lots of events with lots of invitations. And I might be calling out some of you in this room. I love you, I do. <laughs> but what's this new thing that's happening? Here's this new thing. People RSVP, yes, and then just don't show. 
And then when I see them, the next time I see them, my first thought is, are you okay? Like, is everything all right? What happened? And they say nothing <laughs> about the fact they RSVP'd yes and just didn't show. Or when two people who, who have that happen, like someone invites to something, they RSVP yes, they don't show, they see each other and they act like it never happened. It's like we are so averse to conflict at all times that I will rather pretend like what just happened didn't happen so that we can go on pretending like it never happened. It's crazy. But as part of this environment that we live in now, through our technologies, through our values, we are taught and we believe that I am at the center of my world. And not only am I at the center of my world, but if you understood the world correctly, I should be at the center of your world too. <laughs> right? <laughs> such that we get offended when you act in such a way that makes me think that I'm not at the center of your world. <laughs> it's crazy. And the gospel would say <laughs> that you're all wrong. <laughs> This is not agape love at all. This is not the life that God is inviting us into. Actually, the gospel would say that your life is not about you at all. For those who are following Jesus, they have renounced all claims on their life, every aspect of it. Relationships, finances, where you live, what you do. I've renounced all claims for a bigger story. To put you at the center of my world. So it's an uphill battle because we're Americans, because we're millennial Americans, and just when you thought I was done, I'm not. Let's go ahead and cube that individualism and say it's an uphill battle because we are millennial Americans who live in New York City. Yeah. Right? Many of us here, see, when I talk about sacrificial commitment, a lot of y'all are like, no, I know about sacrifices, and you do. But many of us, here, live here, not to sacrificially commit ourselves to others or to the city, but to sacrificially commit ourselves to ourselves, right? We know about sacrifices. I remember I was in, um, in undergrad, I was a finance major, and some of you finance people, you're going to laugh because you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the dream of finance people was to go to New York and for the first five to seven years of their career, work 15-hour days, six or seven days a week. They know about sacrifices, but once you got through that, then you like, it was the good life after that, right? They know about sacrifices. I'm convinced also that uh, in service level industries, which many of you might be working, those are side hustles. Every, like the, the, the ratio of uh, restaurant servers who are also entertainers, whether actors or musicians or dancers, to non-entertainer restaurant servers has got to be like 1.5 to 2 or something like that. Like everyone here has side hustles in this city. Everyone knows about work. We've all come here for something or we stay here for something, for a career, for a life experience. And we're paying exorbitant amounts of rent to stay here for this life experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We know about sacrificially committing ourselves to something, but what are we sacrificially committing ourselves to? Ourself. And the gospel 
John says, this is love. If you want to know who Jesus is, you want to know what he's about, and you don't have to follow him, but if you want to know what he's about, this is love. Not that we have sacrificially committed ourselves to God, but that God has sacrificially committed himself to us and sent his son, who is the means of forgiveness, for our inability to be as he intended. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. While the world did not love God, while the world hated God, God still sacrificially committed himself to us and gave his son to the world for the world's freedom. And since we are so changed by this sacrifice, we get to join Jesus in this type of love. You know, I don't think it's coincidental. We had planned this series a while ago that we're talking about the story as one of sacrificial commitment on the weekend that we celebrate um, the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If anyone's here and you're like not a Christian and you're wondering what's this whole Jesus thing about, one of the best modern day um, embodiments of sacrificial commitment, look no further than Dr. King and the civil rights movement. While a country did not want him and did not want his people he still sacrificially committed himself for that country. One of my favorite stories uh, about Dr. King, um, and sort of when he sort of got this, when he realized what he was in being invited into, and for all of us, we're being invited into a similar story, was very early on. Um, so uh, the bus boycott in Montgomery was going on, and it was going longer than they expected, and Dr. King had been made the reluctant leader of the movement, um, and he was getting scared. And as it went longer, as days became weeks and months, um, that's when death threats increased. Why? Because they were finally hitting the economic purse strings, right? Economics is what we're about. And they got angry and death threats increased. And as Dr. King recollects, he just got more and more afraid. What was gonna happen? He's probably gonna be killed. Friday night, January 27th, 1956, uh, he comes home after a strategy session, and um, his family's asleep. Uh, he receives a call, and it's a death threat on the phone. And he says it was at that point that he really, he was done. He was frazzled. And, um, and you might know the story. So he puts on a pot of coffee, and he sits down at his kitchen table, and he prays. And this is how he um, writes about that, that moment. He says, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and I prayed aloud. And the words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for truth and God will be at your side forever. 
Almost at once, my fears began to go. <clears throat> my uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. What's he expressing? He's expressing nothing short of what John is talking about. And Dr. King was not the Messiah, but Dr. King definitely was further along that road of the path of the Messiah than many of us. He's saying that I'm trying, like you, God, to love a world into existence. I'm trying to love an idea for a country into existence that that country doesn't want. I'm trying to create truth in a world that only knows how to lie. I'm trying to establish justice in a world that is really rotten to its core. And then God said, and now you know who I am. <laughs> when he writes at the end, I was ready to face anything. What's he saying? He's saying, sacrificial commitment, it makes sense. I realize that this sacrificial commitment could result in my own death, but I'm not even holding on to that. If that's how God gave his son, then that's what we as Christians are being invited into as well. Even if I die, it's okay. I'm not afraid. I'm committing myself fully for the flourishing of this world, even when this world says they don't want it. That's at the heart of this agape love. To sacrificially commit yourself for one who doesn't realize what you're doing and for one who doesn't want it. But you know it's for their flourishing. It's for their better. Hope Brooklyn is a community of the story. The story of agape love. We are being invited into a story where we forsake certainty for the sake of an adventure. And in this adventure, we are being further invited to forsake self, to forsake safety, to forsake security, and to sacrificially commit ourselves for the world. And when I say the world, I mean for those in your life, for those in your immediate circle. You can't do everything, but you can do something. You can't take one step. You can know your neighbor's name, like your next door neighbor can get to know them, to sacrificially commit ourselves for this community, for those in Brooklyn. Well, what does that look like? Well, some ideas. What if we didn't use this city, right? Many of us here, and this is no shame, none whatsoever. Many of us are in this city because we moved to this city to get an experience for a career. And a lot of people who eventually leave this city leave with the same narrative. What is it? It was exhausting and I sacrificed a lot, but it was worth it. What if we don't have that narrative? What if instead of using this city as the adult playground that it is, instead we plant a garden? What if we say when, when our time is up in this city, however long we're here, one years, three years, five years, 30 years, that we sacrificially committed ourselves to this place, even though no one else noticed that we worked to make this city a better place. We didn't drain its resources we planted gardens. We gave back resources. What if instead of feeling lonely about lack of community, you and I were that community for others? I hear people say often, I think this. So just so you know, I am just as implicated as you are in this. At the end of a long day, right? You're exhausted. You know you need to be around people. You need community. But Netflix is so much easier, isn't it? path of least resistance. But what do you tell yourself? You say, no, 
I'm choosing community because I need this. And you get on the train and you go 30 minutes to whatever, to your friend's house. But still in that scenario, though that's good, why did you get on the train? For me, I need this. What if we worked hard and we tried to flip that and say at the end of a long day, I'm gonna get on the train then seek out community, not because I need it, which I do, but because they need it. Because they need community. I'm doing this for them. What if church wasn't about what it could give me, but we sacrificially committed ourselves to this community asking, what does whole Brooklyn need? I believe in what God's doing in this community. What does this church need? What if we committed to joining and staying in a table and then starting one? What if we committed to, to partnering financially with Hope Brooklyn to help her become self-sufficient? What if we committed to RSVPing and then showing up? Let's just start there, baby steps, <laughs> baby steps. <laughs> Friends, this is not going to be easy and it's not going to be natural because you and I, from the day we were born, we were not raised in a society that values this. We were raised in a society like the air that we breathe, like the water we drink, totally unaware of it, that says, put yourself first, put yourself first, put yourself first. And to break out of that mold, you're not gonna be able to do it by yourself. You're gonna have to do it with the person sitting on your right and the person sitting on your left. That's why God gives us the church. That's why God says that the wisdom, this agape love is gonna be found in the community. But what if we, a community of primarily millennials, though not all, living in this city, lived in such a way that people said, Hope Brooklyn sacrificially commits itself in a way that we're not used to seeing. And they don't even have language for it because it's so odd. And we're gonna mess up and we're gonna stumble and we're gonna have to be accountable to one another with love through sacrificial commitment, not abandon one another. But that's the invitation. That's the invitation to commit to continuing to dream for a world that doesn't want our dreams. So as we did last week, I wanna take some time before we come up to communion and pray. So if you came with someone, would consider praying together. If you're here by yourself and you feel comfortable, just like team up, make someone, you know, that awkward eye contact and be like, hey, can I pray with you? And say yes. And we want to take some time and we want to just pray. Because I think so much of the time, and I'm the most guilty of this, the gospel for me can be an intellectual exercise when it's not. When Jesus came to the disciples, he didn't say, hey, let me tell you about who I am. Let me give you a treatise and then make up your mind about me. He simply said, follow me. He gave an action step. We, we act first and then we learn what we just did. <laughs> That's the path of discipleship. So I wanna pray as a group. So I wanna invite the band back up at this point. And as they're playing in the background, would you consider praying with your friends, praying by yourself? And here's how I wanna order our prayers as a community. I want us to pray that this form of love, this sacrificial commitment, would be at the center of Hope Brooklyn. We're young guys, we're not even a year old. I don't know if y'all know that. Not even a year old. The cement is still wet with our culture. We're figuring out who we are, God is shaping this. 
I want this type of love, sacrificial commitment, to be at the center of our culture, such that when someone new shows up, that type of love, that sacrifice, is the air of this place. So they breathe in a new air saying, whoa, that doesn't smell like cigarettes and tikka masala. This is, this is new. I want that to be our culture. I want you to pray that this form of love, this sacrificial commitment would be the center of your story. Your story. That God would invite you to start taking steps that as you think and as you live are not putting yourself first, but putting him first, putting others first. If you're here for three years, be fully here. Don't define your present by your future. Be here. Change the narrative. Be here for others. Be here for hope. Be here for this city. So when you leave this city, you have a different story. Not, I'm exhausted. I was beaten down by this city. I put in sacrifices, but it was worth it. But instead, I became more like Jesus in that city. I planted gardens in that city. What if that was your narrative? And no abstractions with this. No abstractions. Don't, play, don't pray in generalities. Pray for one specific tangible step. So as you're silencing your heart and as you're approaching God, and some of y'all here are like, I don't know how to pray. It's cool. Neither do I. The way you do it, you just silence your heart. You start addressing Jesus. Say, Jesus, I don't know what to say. This form of sacrificial commitment is love. That sounds really difficult, but I want to try it. Give me a step. What is a step you want me to take? So we're going to take some time. We're going to pray together. And then we're going to come back up. And before we come to communion, um, we're going to give you two steps from Hope Brooklyn's standpoint as well. So would you join me in prayer? Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.